Hi, I'm Eric Halverson. I guess I represent uh, Legacy, our senior adults group. I'll be reading from the book of John, the ninth chapter, verses 1 to 12. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seen. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. Amen. John chapter nine, if you haven't opened there, you can open to that chapter right now. And we are in a series called Can You See It? And we're looking at the Apostle John, who wrote the book of John, we're looking at his use of light and darkness, seeing and blindness in his book, which is a major theme. And it is no clearer in John than here in John 9, this famous story of a man being born blind and then being given sight by Jesus. You may have heard a sermon before, kind of about those first 12 verses that talk through how Jesus came and approached this man, how he healed him by making mud and putting it on his eyes, how he sent them as part of this religious ritual to show the validity of this miracle and how the religious authority could not see the miracle right in front of their own eyes. And today we're going to take a look actually at the whole chapter, verses 1 through 41, 42 or so. Uh, And so we're going to kind of use this, what Eric just read, as a context to set the scene for looking at the blindness of the religious authorities in John chapter 9. And so if you get some time this week, you should read the whole chapter. It's crazy, fascinating, amazing. It's a great chapter of scripture. So I'm thankful we got the context in the first 12 verses. So if you've gotten there, we're with, you're with us now. John chapter 9, we're going to look at all the verses. I said through verse 42, it doesn't even exist. So verses 1 through 41. One of the things that I feel like we've learned this year or experienced this year more than any other time in my own life is how much we put our lives in the hands of experts. And who would have thought 12 months ago that Dr. Anthony Fauci would be a household name? Uh, who, who would have thought how much data we would internalize? I kind of feel like Jason Bourne sometimes. Remember that scene in the first Bourne Identity where he's in the diner and he's talking about all the things that are in his brain? Like I can stand here right now and tell you that Cape Girardeau, Missouri is the number one region in the United States in terms of new COVID transmissions this week. And I don't know how I know that. 
Right? There's this data that's in my heart, that's in my mind. I know that the Pfizer vaccine is showing an up to 90% and 94% effectiveness rate at stopping symptomatic and asymptomatic COVID expressions after the second dosage. And a year ago, I wouldn't even know what many of those words meant in that sentence. There's all of these experts feeding information into our minds day after day after day, and it's affecting every aspect of our lives. And the distance that you're sitting from that guy right there is because an expert told us that's how far you should sit from him. And the thing that's touching your mouth right now, which you might be feeling the condensation because you were singing into it, it's because an expert told us to wear that. And the fact that we're gathering right now and we weren't gathering two months ago is because an expert told us it was time to do that. Last week, President Biden got on stage and said that on July 4th, we will be in our backyards having barbecues with our neighbors and friends again like nothing changed. And he forecasted it like a meteorologist because the experts told him to tell us that that's when our social calendar will start to open up about five months from now. It was probably true that our lives have been dictated by experts for a long, long time, but this last year has been one that has been right in front of our faces every day. As we hear from the county health department, as we read the, the research coming out from the CDC or the World Health Organization, as we listen to Dr. Fauci, as we listen to President Trump or President Biden talking about coronavirus, we realize that these experts in our world affect what comes into our minds, affects what our hands and our feet do. And a lot of times their research comes out of our mouths, sometimes in a positive way and sometimes in a negative way. And it feels like it's not a stretch to say that we as a culture, as a community, have a mixed relationship, a mixed emotion when it comes to experts and their influence on our lives. Now, there's this deep undercurrent of gratefulness as a nation, as a world global community right now, as we think of what this pandemic would have felt like if it wasn't for the work of experts, of doctors and scientists and statisticians and frontline expert workers and vaccine administrators and logistics planners and shipping people, right? All of these experts who can think through big issues on a global scale. We are grateful for the expertise, for the research, for the years of study that these folks have done to help us live our lives in as safe a way as possible, we are grateful. But I've noticed in our world, maybe you have too, other emotions existing besides mere gratefulness. I've, ex I've noticed skepticism out of people when it comes to experts. Skepticism when it comes to the expertise that they bring. A skepticism when it relates to how much someone in an ivory tower should affect what I do and where I walk in my neighborhood and where I go to the grocery store and where I can worship and all those different kinds of things. We're skeptical. Some of us are irritated. Some of us are sad. Some of us are disillusioned because we feel like there's too much politics and expertise, that statistics can say anything. Some of us feel like no one knows what they're talking about. Some of us feel like our lives are being controlled by these people who don't even know who we are. And they look at the county data, but they don't see what my life is like. And so we've got this, in a sense, gratefulness that there is expertise in the world. But sometimes it gets difficult to put our lives in the hands of someone. Oh, we don't know if we want to put our lives in their hands. This mixed relationship with expertise is not new to the faith. It's not new to Christianity. It's not new to the church of Jesus. We've always had a mixed relationship with experts in our field, whether it's in the time of Jesus 
where the people who got the worst rap in the New Testament were the experts in the law, the religious authorities, the scribes, the Pharisees, these men who had devoted their lives to being experts in the Old Testament so that they might see the Messiah when he came. And then it seems like even though they had all this expertise, it served them in no way when Jesus came. Or fast forward to today, where in a sense, we love expertise. Right? We want to grow in our knowledge of God. You are sitting here today watching a sermon, listening to a sermon from an expert in Christianity, right? And that's not to toot my own horn, but that's why you're here, right? Because I studied the Bible. I've got a four-year degree in Bible theology and biblical languages. I have a doctorate in biblical preaching. I spent hours and hours in this text reading commentaries, consulting with experts, meeting with other church leaders, talking about what this means and doesn't mean and how I can stand before you and before God and say, I rightfully divided the word of truth because I bring expertise into the pulpit. And that's why you're here, to hear the scriptures, not from some weirdo, hopefully, Because in some level, you trust religious authorities as experts who, in a sense, hold the keys to your life and death and eternity because if we got the whole Jesus thing wrong, we're in a world of trouble. And we trust denominational experts. The Catholics trust the Vatican as an expert witness. We trust the apostles as experts. We trust the creeds and councils of the church. We trust these communities that have come together and handed down the parcel of knowledge related to the truth, with a capital T. And on our lives, we rest in the expertise of those who have gone before us. And yet in the church, we have a mixed relationship with religious experts. We all know people who are very smart in the head, but dumb in the heart, right? We know people who know Jesus with their brain, but we wonder if they know him with their lives. We've all experienced religious leaders that we wonder, okay, you know the Bible, but do you know Jesus? Some of us have experienced difficulty and abuse and vitriol coming from the mouths of people who claim to speak for Jesus as experts in the faith, and they shipwrecked the faith of someone that you know. I was thinking this morning of Ravi Zacharias, who's a world-renowned expert in Christian apologetics, and, and then after his death, it comes out all the stories of his sexual impropriety and his abuse of power and his general creepiness and the way that he handled the scriptures well with his mouth, but the way that he handled things with his hands discredited his witness and makes us wonder if we should trust him as an expert. So the truth is there's a lot of people who are experts in Jesus, but they're blind to Jesus. Now that's the lens through which I want to read John chapter 9 today and this week, if you can read it this week a little bit and kind of study this passage some more because we see this irony where the people who were supposed to be experts about the Messiah couldn't see him at all. We see somebody who starts this passage literally completely blind and comes out of it an expert in Jesus more than anyone else in the passage. And I want to warn us as we read this passage about ways that that our own expertise can go to our head as we seek to grow in our knowledge. I want to help us learn how we can be equipped to be experts in knowledge and practice and in the emotion of the faith. And I I want us to see how Jesus approaches this whole scenario as we watch this whole thing fall apart from John 9-1 all the way to verse 41 of this text as we see expertise gone wrong 
and the blinding power of religious authority. I'm gonna give you four things to write down if you're a writer downer today. Uh, The first thing that we see in this passage as we look at it, just at first glance, 10,000 feet view, is that the religious experts can't see Jesus. The religious experts can't see Jesus. This is one of the pieces of great irony in this text. You know, in the first 12 verses that Eric read, it kind of ends with that mystery. They're saying, well, where is Jesus? We can't see him. We don't know. And that irony carries with the religious experts through the text. They go on this witch hunt trying to find this Jesus. They go on a witch hunt trying to find the man who was healed by Jesus. They're having a really hard time putting it all together like they're the ones who are stumbling around in the dark and blind. But this kind of becomes the major theme of John chapter 9 that Jesus brings out in verse 39 when he says, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. As you read this text, we see someone who starts blind ends up seeing And the people, these religious experts, who we start at this text thinking that they're the ones who can truly see, by the end they've revealed that they themselves are blind. It's one of the most brilliant literary chapters in John's imagery of light and darkness in the entire book. And we've hit this on a number of levels. The first week of the series, we talked about John chapter 3, and the same kind of idea where the people who are supposed to see can't see Jesus. Nicodemus talks to Jesus, and he says, you'll never see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. And Nicodemus says, so you mean I need to go back in time into my mother's womb and be born again? Right? And all of us are like, no, how can he not see it? John chapter 6, last week. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And the crowds falling around him are saying, I think he's about to give us more free bread. It's like, no, that's not what he's talking about. They're taking this symbolism to literally and they can't see it. The religious leaders come to Jesus and say, are are we blind too? Jesus says, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim that you can see, your guilt remains. You think you're experts in me, but you can't even see me when I'm standing here in front of your face. You can't even see that I'm the one who gave this man his sight. You can't even see that I did it in accordance in a way that you would think that I am legitimate in what I'm doing. You can't even hear the testimony of the man that it's been done to. You can't even talk objectively with his parents about what happened to him. You are blind to this whole thing even though you are experts in religion. I listened to a podcast last week about how expertise can go terribly wrong. It was a really sad podcast. If you want to listen to it, I think it's appropriate. It's called Sideways from BBC. And I think it was the second episode of the podcast talked about the role of experts in skewing the truth. And the story, the, the primary story in the podcast was about a woman in the UK who had two tragedies happen in her life over the course of 12 months. And she had a child die of sudden infant death syndrome one Christmas. And then she got pregnant again and had a second child die of SIDS the next Christmas. And as the family is suffering and praying and whatever families do when they experience that level of death, of tragedy, she's brought into court for the murder of her children. There's no evidence. There's no reason that she would ever be convicted. So she thinks it's no big deal, but she and her husband are both attorneys themselves. And so they decide, okay, well, we should get a good attorney just in case because we've seen the court system go wrong. And sure enough, it does. 
They bring in an expert, a statistician, a doctor who comes in. Actually, he wasn't a real statistician. He was an armchair statistician. And he said, listen, the the chances of a child dying of SIDS is very slim. You multiply that by it happening two times in a year, it never happens. So the chances of this happening by random chance are so obscure that I am absolutely positive that someone must have murdered these children and it must have been her. So she went to jail for life with no evidence because a doctor claimed to be an expert at statistics and his expertise caused a lot of pain, a lot of damage, especially in the most vulnerable and terrible season in this woman's life. Luckily, different experts got her out of prison eventually. But we've all experienced the the desperate power and detriment of expertise gone wrong. And working as a pastor, I I see this, unfortunately, in the lives of people who attend church a lot of times. Sometimes expertise about Jesus somehow correlates to hearts growing cold to Jesus. And I don't, it's hard to even understand how it happens. I see people all the time, it starts out, and they're just so passionate about growing in their faith, and so they start reading. They start growing in their knowledge of God. And at first, it's a worshipful experience. They love these new truths about the Lord. They love studying the depths of theology and the history of our denomination or our realm or whatever it is as Reformed or Protestant people. They love learning the history of the church and they're going deep and it feels like they're growing in their love of Jesus along the way. But at some point, it's like their head keeps growing and their heart starts shrinking. Now all of a sudden they start becoming hateful and judgmental. They start bouncing around from church to church, trying to find a place where their ears can get tickled by the type of theology that they want to hear from someone. Their feet start getting frozen and they feel like their contribution in the church is to be a mouthpiece for the theology they've learned instead of to be real the hands and feet of Jesus in this world. There's no love for neighbor anymore. It seems like there's no real worship anymore. And it's like their head has gotten in the way of their heart and their soul is withering. Even as their expertise increases. We've seen it. Maybe you've seen it. Maybe it's happened to you. There is a way we're going to talk about to be an expert in Jesus and not let your love grow cold towards Jesus. But before we get there, I want to show you three different things that that I see in this text where the experts went wrong. And this is not point number two, but you can write this down. This is like sub point A. I'm doing that. Sub point A. Number one, I feel like the experts in this passage, they try to solve too many mysteries. And this whole passage starts with a mystery about, about a man who is blind and no one knows why. It's this problem of pain in the world. How, why do bad things happen to good people? Or in this man's case, he had never done anything bad or good. It says the disciples, when they first come along this man, they're asking this mystery question, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Because the religious leaders of that day had to get an answer to that question. It wasn't a mystery to them. I said, okay, well, some type of disability has to do with sin. So the question comes, well, what if somebody has never walked a step in their life before the disability came? They were born that way. And so there was a real theological debate about whether or not a baby could commit sin in utero that would allow them to be born with some sort of abnormality or deformity or disability. Other people said, no, 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 that's not how it works. Babies can't sin in the mother's womb. The parents must have sinned. 
and passed on the sin to their unborn child or a descendant has sinned in some way, right? The Bible talks about passing down the judgment to their offspring. That must have been what happened. And so to try to tie a bow on this mystery that is retained throughout all of the scriptures, that the good rain falls on the evil and the just, that judgment falls on the evil and the just, they try to tie a bow on it and make an answer to why this man had been suffering. They try to solve too many mysteries. There are some things in the faith that are supposed to be a mystery. But sometimes religious experts try to solve them and it ends up hurting people. The second place that this goes wrong in this passage, this happens a ton of time. They put the sinner label on too many people. I feel like this is one of the ways that you can know that, that your knowledge is going the wrong direction in your life is when you start feeling like everyone's a sinner but you. These people are sinners. These people are sinners. We can't hang out with those people. They're sinners. Those people can't come to church. They're sinners. Oh, this group of people, they're all sinners. They're jaded, right? Sinner, 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 sinner. Right? Over the course of these 41 verses, everyone's called a sinner. Jesus is called a sinner. The man born blind is called a sinner. His parents are called a sinner. The only people not called sinners are the sinners in this passage, the religious experts who are casting judgment on everyone else. They put the sinner label on too many people. The third place that I see this go wrong in this passage is that they get caught up in weird doctrinal minutia. And if you're like, what's that? Don't worry about it. Some of you know exactly what that is. They get caught up in weird doctrinal minutia, like the how many angels can dance on the head of a pin type of minutia. Or the reason that they first kind of turn on Jesus here is not merely because he healed on the Sabbath, even though Jesus has gotten in trouble for this before. The real thing that Jesus did in this passage that got him in huge trouble was that he made mud on the Sabbath. Or there's two reasons that mud making is a sin on the Sabbath, according to the religious leaders, possibly. Depends on their camp and their sphere of thought and all that. Number one, spitting, which Jesus had to do to create the mud, is sometimes seen as a sin on the Sabbath to the religious authorities of the New Testament. Because spitting, you gotta stick with me, doctrinal minutia, weird doctrinal minutia. Spitting, if you spit into dry dust, what happens? Poof, and a furrow is formed. And that furrow looks a lot like the type of furrow you would have to dig in a field to plant wheat. And everyone knows that planting and digging for wheat is a sin on the Sabbath because that's work, classically. But if you spit and your spit makes a furrow that one might drop a seed in, that itself could also be considered work and therefore sinful on the Sabbath. We call that weird doctrinal minutia. That's a minority view. The majority view of what got Jesus in trouble was the mud making, the kneading that it took to make the mud. In order to make mud, you spit, it's dirt, and you shove it together. Kneading mud is a lot like kneading bread. Oh, that smells a lot like work, right? <laughs> and that's what to cook on the Sabbath, because that's a lot like work. Some people, that's what they do is they're cooks, they're bakers, right? And so What's the difference between kneading flour and yeast into that flour and kneading mud to make bread? It seems similar enough that if God is displeased by bread making, surely he was also equally displeased by the action required of mud making. And so Jesus, in the act of kneading the soil, was committing sin, not according to the Bible, but sin according to the likes of the weird doctrinal minutiae of the religious authority and experts who felt like, no, 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 no. If Jesus was truly the Messiah, he would know you can't make mud on Saturday. That's rookie stuff. So these religious experts, they can't see 
in Jesus. You know, if you're someone who's getting caught up in weird doctrinal minutia, or you're getting caught up in a, in a journey where your head is growing big and your heart is growing cold, take these warnings to heart. Right? If you are not, you're thinking, why in the world are we talking about it? It's because this happens. This happens to people. You need to know why and how it happens. Folks, call people sinners. They get caught up in minutia. They end up becoming blind to Jesus as they solve the mysteries of the faith that were never meant to be solved. Lest you be in a point of despair, thinking, well, then what is the role of theology? What is the role of doctrine? What is the role of knowledge? How does it work in a positive light? I want to show you something amazing in this text. This is my favorite thing in John chapter 9. You can write this down. This is point number two, and it is that the best theology in this passage comes from the person who experienced Jesus personally, namely the man who was born blind. If you study the blind man, the formerly blind man in John 9, through the lens of if he were like a Martin Luther or a John Knox or a famous theologian in some way, you'll be blown away at just how amazing his theology is about Jesus as compared to the experts of the law, even though he's only been able to see Jesus for like five seconds. He knows Jesus intimately because he experienced Jesus personally. And it's a beautiful thing. Right, it starts with this man having an experience with Jesus in verse 11. He says, he doesn't really know a lot about what happens, but it says, the man they called Jesus, he made some mud. He didn't know it was a sin. He made some mud and he put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Right, it starts out with an experience of the real and living God, Jesus Christ. It starts with an experience And then as we follow this man and these arguments throughout this passage, we see a couple things that marks his theological position that are very different than theological markings of the religious experts of the day. Number one, his truth, this isn't even going to be on the screen. This is just a bonus. His truth is so simple. It's a simple truth. When they're wrestling with this Jesus and the identity of Jesus and they put him on trial and they say, who is this Jesus? What do you say? He says four words. He's a prophet. That's all I know. He's a prophet, right? That's, that comes out in verse 17. The man replied, he is a prophet. He holds to this simple truth that is true. He's the first person who identifies Jesus clearly in the passage. And even though he identifies Jesus clearly in the passage and his truth is simple, it is not dogmatic. That's the second thing I noticed about this guy. He is not dogmatic. He's not battling these truths over people's heads. He's holding these deep truths that are true a lot more loosely than the religious experts are holding on to their falsehood. I love the way that he talks about Jesus when they ask him, well, yeah, he's a prophet, but is he a sinner? Because he made the mud, right? The spitting, all that. He says in verse 25, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I can see, right? He's not dogmatic. He had an experience with Jesus. He doesn't know about all the minutia of the religious elite. All he knows is that Jesus must be a prophet because he used to be blind and now he could see. And unless you think that this man is just a little too like touchy-feely, a little too experiential, not enough expert, I love where this lands at the end of the passage because this man who was formerly blind brings the most clear picture of Jesus in this entire passage. And he shows that he wrestles with the theology that was wrestled with at the time. He says in verse 31, he says, we know that God does not listen to sinners. I agree with you, religious people. God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Then he says this, nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing, nothing. 
He has this deep theology, even though he just met Jesus a minute ago, he has this deep theology that's informed by the same tenets as the religious elite. The same theology. It's about wrestling with who's a sinner or not. It's about wrestling with who has the authority to do things. It's about wrestling with the power that Jesus has at his disposal and what it could possibly mean. And even though his truth is simple and his truth is not dogmatic, it is still deep. And his experience of Christ has given him a very orthodox theology about Christ. You're wondering, how do you grow in your faith without becoming jaded? There's there's such a thing as an experiential theology. And if you're a theological person, you're like rolling and you're not yet in a grave yet right now because experiential theology is this really scary word for those of us who are in theological circles because to a lot of people, experiential theology means I don't need to study the Bible. I don't need to know the truth about the gospel. I just want to have an experience with Jesus. And that is not what I'm talking about. That is not what this blind man experienced in the passage. To this man, experiential theology was having an experience with God in accordance with your knowledge of God. That somehow your faith is working with your works, kind of like James says in the epistle of James. This idea that you can grow in your knowledge of God and live it out through your experience. You know that Jesus exists because you read in the scriptures, but also because you encountered him. You know that God wants you to love your neighbor, not just because he tells you to, but because you're loving your neighbor. And in your orthopraxis, you're growing in your orthodoxy. Orthopraxis is practicing your faith. Orthodoxy is knowing the right things. And when those things merge together, you have an experience of God in your life and in your heart, and it syncs up with what's happening in your head. And that's where the best theology is formed. Theology that comes out and is forged out in real life. I'm sure there are some mysteries of the faith that we'll never experience in real life. You can't really experience the Trinity in real life. Although at the same time, the Apostle Paul says, if you want to understand the Trinity, you can experience it. Some of us in the marriage relationship, because we see the mystery of two being one in one flesh. And our experience of the marriage relationship can give us a glimpse into the mystery of a Trinitarian concept that's really hard to fathom when our knowledge and our real life experiences merge together. And one of the reasons it's hard to listen to, to biblical experts sometimes is it feels like they live in ivory towers and they've never lived in the real world before. So imagine the beauty of someone who lives in the real world with Jesus and studies in the prayer closet and in the scriptures the Jesus of the New Testament. All of a sudden that's catalytic because it's somebody who's not growing in their head without growing in their hearts or their hands or their feet. Their eyes are open, their ears are open, their life is awakened to Jesus because they didn't just hear about him, they experience him. Now, I would love it if this passage ended at this point. Right, where it's like the, the religious leaders are bumbling around like in the dark and then the blind man becomes the new religious leader and he like kicks him out of the church, like get out of here. It's like, yeah, and everybody cheers and it's over. Well, that's not how this passage ends. Because the religious leaders, even though they don't have any sight, what they do have is a lot of power. And so these religious folks start using the leverage of their power to alienate and kick out and cast out this man who's been transformed by Jesus. And that's your third point. Even though it's sad to write it down, write it down. The third point is that the religious experts cast out the man who had been transformed by Jesus. One of the reasons that I wanted you to read this passage through the lens of 
of the man being born blind being an expert theologian is because it kind of hides the truth that you're going to see next, which is this, this man being born blind being cast out as a sinner, even though he's the one who experienced Jesus. And these religious experts use all of their power and authority along the way. They, they can't see Jesus. They can't find him. They interview the man. And he's like, it's me. They don't believe it. So they go to his parents because they're trying to seek out multiple witnesses like the scriptures teach. But they've already made it clear that anyone who aligns with Jesus will be kicked out of the synagogue and removed from the fellowship. And so the parents are unable to say anything about their own son. Right? They're like, well, you just talk to him. He's, a, he's an adult because their power has made it so they can't respond. And so then they go to the man who was born blind. They interrogate him. They have that conversation where he puts them in their place theologically. It gets filled with emotion. They get so mad at him that they do all the wrong things that we talked about all at one time. In the saddest verse in the book of John, in my, besides the crucifixion, and they say this in verse 34, to this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Most commentators believe that they're throwing him out. Ekbalo in Greek is casting him out, excommunicating him, removing him from the synagogue. And if he was a castaway as someone who had to sit and beg at the temple steps before, now he's not even allowed to be part of the fellowship of believers because he experienced Jesus Christ, they cast him out. Well, this speaks a lot of things to a lot of us. I know some of us have, are not the people who struggle with becoming cold in our heads. Some of us are the people who've had the experience of the blind man in this passage, because we feel like we've been chewed up and spit out by people in religious authority who use their power to do harm who used the words and the tongue that God gave him to cause distress in your life. Maybe you've been cast out of a church because people there considered you a sinner. And no matter what you tried to say about your testimony in Jesus Christ and his transforming power, you were removed from their midst, even though you were the victim and not the perpetrator of the violence against you. You were cast out. And some of us are on the risk of becoming these people. Some of us think about the news stories of all these pastors that are stepping down or being forced to resign or being found out because of their sexual sin, because of their abuse of power, because of their abuse of finance, because of the way that they use the pulpit for their own political agenda or their financial agenda or their erroneous theological agenda, and they destroyed so many lives in the process. Whenever somebody gets up here and speaks, in our church, we remind them, and I remind them, that the Bible says that those who speak should speak as though they speak the very words of God himself. And I say the reason that I'm telling you this, if I'm talking to somebody who's speaking, is because you need to realize, like James says, there's a lot of power in the tongue. And if you're gonna get up and step in our pulpit and you lead people astray, or you step in our pulpit and you pound people in the head with your doctrine, you step in our pulpit and you say things that God would not allow you or want you to say, you can destroy people. And I say someday those who teach in the church will have to stand before God and be judged more harshly because even though our job is to step aside and let God come through and teach the church, it's so easy for us to take the microphone from God and use it for our own purposes. And that's happened to a lot of us. And so if that's you, I just wanna to read to you Jesus' response 
to this whole situation, after this man gets cast out of the church and thrown away in the garbage, Jesus responds. And if you're taking notes, this is your fourth point. Jesus finds the one who is cast away and restores him to life. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. And this resonates with you at any level because of the experience or treatment you've had in a church or in our church or in a religious context growing up or your parents had, whatever it is. Write this down and meditate on, on this thought this week. If you have been hurt by hateful religion, Jesus is waiting to restore you. He's waiting to restore you. Right, now that you're outside of the church, maybe you're watching online because you don't feel comfortable coming into a church. Or now that you're kind of coming back quietly and hoping nobody knows who you are. And now that you're kind of healed a little bit, it's scabbed over the pain you had at your church in the past, whatever it is. Maybe in this context, this time, today is the day that you want to ask Jesus to come to your life and minister to you. Jesus is not like the religious authorities that hurt you. Jesus is very much unlike the terrible people in this passage. Jesus is the one in the passage who heals him of his ailment and who restores him after religion has failed him. Maybe what you need to do today is spend some time in, in prayer and say, Jesus, I, I just need you to heal me from the wounds that were caused by religion. We've got a prayer room out in the lobby. Maybe this is a good Sunday for you to, to sneak out there after the service today and and say, I just need someone to pray for me because I want Jesus to meet with me and restore me because I've been hurt and it hurts. Maybe it's something that you want to do privately. Maybe it's something you want to click on the prayer button online and, and experience in prayer right now. Whatever it is, Jesus is waiting to restore those who have been cast out. You know, I, I'm not opposed to expertise. I'm someone who's devoted my life to growing in my knowledge of God so that I can impart it to others and equip us to live the life that God has called us to live. But the world does not need more experts alone. The world needs men and women who have a deep knowledge of God and a rich heart for God and a life that is on fire for the gospel with hands and feet that exist to extend the presence of Jesus into the world. So if you are someone who wants to grow in their faith, let your expertise and your experience of Jesus grow in tandem and never let your mind run ahead of the rest of your life. Let me pray for us and then we'll respond in song.